This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Mallory Story out of Alabama. How are you doing today, Mallory? I'm doing good. How are you, Michael? I'm doing great. And I've, I've met Mallory at conferences over the last couple of years. Uh, she does a lot of trucking and other kinds of work. Uh, but what really impressed me is that she was just involved and settled a case for $15 million. Uh, and it was a tough case in a contributory negligence state, which is that means if they put anything, 1% of fault on her client, they would get nothing. And it really impressed me. And so Frankly, I'd like to have more $15 million settlements, so I wanted to learn how you did it because uh, I want to do that. So how are you doing today, Mark? Um, so, yeah, thank you. First, thank you for your kind words. Um, I follow you. I follow, follow Trial Lawyer Nation. I go to the big rig boot camp that you put on. I think maybe I was the first person that signed up when that opened a couple weeks ago. Oh, awesome. Um, so thank you for having me on and um you know, this $15 million settlement was really exciting for our firm, for me, for the clients, obviously. Um, and so I'm glad to be here to talk about it and share share anything that I can uh, with people who are experienced and people who maybe don't have as much experience uh, with these kind of cases. Yeah, well, I think that we can count probably on one hand the number of people that are ex- have experience in multiple eight-figure settlements. I mean, that's that's their... They're rare, but when you get such a case, you know, you need to really work it up. And I, and I think there's lessons from working up those cases that we can apply to other cases for maximizing their value. Absolutely. Um, just to kind of give you a little bit of background on me, um, I've only been practicing for about five years, but I left a really lucrative offer on the table after law school. Um, people would consider it lucrative because of the firm, the plaintiff's firm that is with. They're, na- they're a national level plaintiff's firm. Um, and I had the opportunity to stay, but I knew I would be writing briefs for big NDLs and chose to come, uh, be with Trip Walton, the founder of this firm, Walton Law Firm that I'm with now because of the experience and the access to good cases, you know, big cases. We do bread and butter cases. We do small motor vehicle cases also, um, but we end up getting a lot of, you know, catastrophic injuries, serious injury, wrongful death, injury cases. Um, and so I've gotten so much more experience than a lot of people, you know, my age or just more fresh out of school, what we call baby lawyers, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's something unique that I've been able to use to bolster my career um, that most other people don't get the opportunity to. And I've been able to learn a lot from Trip and a lot from the other lawyers in the firm and lawyers that I've worked with, co-counsel, um, that have really been great for me individually growing um, in the way that I practice individually. What made you want to go... You know, it's almost unusual that someone wants to go into plaintiff's work right out of law school. A lot of people, this is like a second choice in their legal path. Uh, you know, they, they see the light later. What made you want to do it right out of the box? Well, I got a clerkship offer at the law firm. I was, you know, that everybody at my school wanted to get a clerkship at in Montgomery. And um, I was put in the fraud department and I took that opportunity um, I had had eight years of previous legal experience before law school. I had I was a paralegal for a firm. Oh, wow. 
And so I kind of knew what the plaintiff side looked like, knew what the defense side looked like, um, had worked those cases closely with the lawyers in that firm. Um, and honestly, I went into law school wanting to be an insurance defense attorney for like a, a hospital or healthcare related. But then I took the opportunity at this big plaintiff law firm in Montgomery because everybody else wanted it. But <laughs> I was offered it and I wasn't even seeking that job. Um, it was kind of funny how that worked out. Um, but after working there for two years and getting to work on big whistleblower and fraud cases, I was like, you know, I don't think I could ever go back. You know, once you're on the right side, you just can't switch over. Um, so that's, that's where I, that's how I ended up on the plaintiff side. Um, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't thrilled about litigation. Um, but I knew that it would give me experience in the courtroom, representing clients, working with people, feeling like I'm actually helping people every day, because that's ultimately what drives me. Supposedly, that's what drives all of us. You know, everybody has their own opinion on it. But what's most filling in life is being able to help other people and serve other people. Um, so that's why I, I, I stuck with it. You know, I've learned so much and it's it's been a growing experience for sure these last five years. Absolutely. I think it's hard to, to start off or, or to get into the plaintiff side if you're only motivated by money, because frankly, you know, if you do the right kind of corporate work, uh, corporate litigation, corporate defense work, you can still make a lot of money without all the risk and heartache. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, because we see things, you know, this as well as I do. We see things and we we help people and we're called to help people that are are hurting. They're in a traumatic situation. They've been in a traumatic situation. They're going through that. They may have lost a family member or they may, may be permanently injured for the rest of their life. And for us as plaintiff's lawyers, that's a very heavy burden to carry. Um, you know, some of us carry it better than others. And I think we're all ultimately still trying to figure out, we may never figure out how to best carry it, but somehow we put one foot in front of the other and keep going on to represent the next person that needs us. Yeah. You know, it, it is definitely, and we could talk forever about the emotional toll that this takes on us and, and how to handle it. You know, learning how to handle that took me a good 20 years, 25 years, honestly, uh, of just learning what to take on and what to, not that you don't care, but what, what to let go because it's not your burden. Right. Um, right. And a lot of it, I think, is just to help people, but we didn't create the problem. And our clients are more resilient than we think they are. Yeah. Like, we're there to give them their shot at justice and we're going to do everything we can for them. But, you know, whether we get a great settlement, get a great verdict or, you know, not do well at trial, get reversed on the field, they're going to survive. Uh, right. and, and, and when we have that faith in them, it's a little easier because the more when you're scared, you don't perform as well in the courtroom. Absolutely. It's like going on a date when you're real nervous. You know, you're just you're stumbling <laughs> on things. You look like you're awkward. You're worried. You know, it's uh yeah, and that's one of the biggest things that I've heard more recently um, from people that I follow. You know, my part of my how I'm trying to be a great trial lawyer, right? Yeah. You know, there, like I said before, there's some of us who, you know, are out there just to work the case. It's a job, you know, maybe not happy. And there's some of us who really, you know, try to work within what we're doing to find happiness and find joy, like Mallory talked about a week or two yeah. ago last week or earlier this week, I can't remember. Um, but, you know, really finding your purpose and your joy. And I think fear, like you mentioned, is a huge factor in our performance and sometimes the way we resolve cases. Absolutely. Uh, there's big injuries involved. Um, so I think that's, that's something that I keep hearing more about recently and have really tried to work on myself is not being controlled by fear or worry about the outcome because you're right we can only do our best individually to try to set things up um the way they need to be set up and and that's all we can do you know we don't write the checks yeah so what have you done to to try to get past the fear or not be controlled by fear 
So um, I hear, I know that you talk about Sari Delamont. Yeah. Um, she was introduced to me a couple months ago by a colleague and she talks a lot about fear. Um, Friedman talks about fear. You, I mean, you have all these big trucking lawyers in the country who talk about fear in the courtroom. Um, you know, if you listen to them enough, they're not going around making talks on just this topic, but I make a point to attend educational seminars. You know, we've been on Zoom a lot this past year, attend as much as I can with that. Um, and in that, you know, you, you pull little snippets of people's conversations because it comes up with everybody and it may just be one passing remark, but I kind of collect those. Yeah. Um, in my mind. And I I think ultimately for me, I'm figuring out that I really need to be able to connect with the client um, and the case and the purpose. And um, in this $15 million settlement, you know, it was a complex liability case. We're pure contrib, like you mentioned. Um, we're in Alabama. I mean, Lord, I don't know if you can just keep stacking these things <laughs> on. Um, the Alabama not a planet's paradise. No, <laughs> we have a couple of counties that are that are much better than others, but then you always have the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court of Alabama is basically bought and paid for by big insurance. Um, it's not, you know, everybody posts these you know, multi-million dollar settlements or, or multi-million dollar verdicts rather. And they don't tell you what happened with the Supreme Court after that verdict, because all of these big verdicts, anything over about $8 million, a jury verdict in Alabama over $8 million will get appealed for some reason. Mm-hmm. And it will probably get either stripped or sent back down um, and so that was something, that's something we're always aware of here, you know, yeah. um, especially in cases with larger damages. And, um, that's something we were, I was very aware of in this big case, um, because our damages blackboard were at 21.8 million. Wow. So, you know, that's something that was a real, a real threat to this case and my client. Um, but fear, you know, going just to, to kind of tie that all together. Um, I just had a feeling about this case from the beginning that everything was going to be okay. Huh. Um, I don't know how to explain that, um, but I just knew that this family needed help, you know, and in the beginning of it, I didn't know what that was going to look like. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a fighter. And I like to be aggressive and I like to go take what I want, you know? Um, And that's kind of, that was my mentality with this case is that we're on the side of right. We will win. I don't know what that will look like, but we will win. That's awesome. Uh, I really love your mentality. I mean, that that mindset is going to serve you very well as you continue on this career that's already doing incredibly well for five years. I've been, I'm honestly a little shocked that you're only five years out. Um, I know. You, you remind me of my Mallory that I work with my partner because uh, it's always like shocking how little time I think she's like eight or nine years out now. She's yeah. been me. I should remember. It's just, it's a blur. I remember she came working with me and she became my partner at some point And I'm, you know, sometimes it feels like it's been 20 years. Sometimes it feels like it's been three. Cause it just, <laughs> you know, time flies, but, uh, I'm really impressed with the way you're doing that. What have you done to develop your skill set? I mean, you talked about your mindset some, but you're, as far as, you know, how to analyze cases, how to work them up. So, um, you know, I stepped into a practice that had a very good reputation, um, a, a reputation for trying cases, big verdicts, a lot of experience, and a lot of personal, like, inter-community networking here um, uh-huh. around where we are. And um, other than learning how the firm does things generally as a system and what works and what doesn't work, um, you know, we have systems in place. We have, you know, books everywhere. 
research everywhere. Um, when I started here, we had one person who just did all of the research and the writing who was a legal genius. Oh, wow. He has since passed away, but I'm talking old school legal genius. And you could go to him with any little thing and he could give you his opinion on it and show you where all the cases are. And we don't have that anymore, but getting to experience that initially kind of sets the bar pretty high um, expectation wise. And then just, you know, the access to cases to work on, you know, I try to not only learn from the lawyers here who have a lot more experience, but I I think we have over 75 years of experience here combined. Um, But just surrounding myself with people who are, who I think are really great lawyers for one reason or another, not all because you know, this person gets the biggest verdicts and this person gets the biggest settlement. And, you know, I look at, is this person likable? You know, are they cool? Are they low key? How do they communicate? Um, I, like I said earlier, go to those seminars. I make that a priority. Um, Luckily, the firm here makes that a priority because I know some firms don't either have the resources or don't make education a priority for younger lawyers in the firm or lawyers who may be practicing for 15 years that haven't litigated and just want to get into the litigation of like trucking cases or commercial cases. So, you know, that's got education's value here. And so I've been able to attend, you know, just joining ATAA and then the AAJ trucking litigation group, um, you know, working right now on the, um, the assistant to the editor for the journal that comes out twice a year, um, going to AJ's depositions colleges. That's a great program. Yeah. I mean, just really focusing on, you know, being better at the different elements of trial, you know, and kind of slowly working my way through. And obviously the case resource comes in for practice. You know, it's hard to just learn information and take it in if you never get to practice it in real life. Um, and so that's, you know, the biggest thing is just kind of baptism by fire. Just start doing it. Yeah. Make sure that you're not going to commit malpractice, obviously, <laughs> but just start doing it, get your feet wet, get the experience. Um, and just over time, if you're focusing on, if you're really aware of what you're doing, I think you just become better as a lawyer. And there is no way to learn without getting in there and doing it. I mean, we can go to all the seminars and on all the theory you want, but until you jump in and you take a deposition and deal with not getting the answer you anticipated or, you know, not getting what you want or, or hearing that opportunity that you didn't think was going to be there, that someone might say something good for you if you, if you softball and ask the right question. Uh, it just, it just takes time and experience. One thing I am happy to hear with, you know, the, your choices of education too, because not all seminars are created equal. I mean, there's a lot that are just boring case law updates that may or may not be relevant to your practice or a bunch of people talking about how complicated things are and the subtext being that you need to refer all your cases to the speakers rather than speakers actually trying to help you with your practice. Right. I think some, I'm kind of gotten picky and choosy about what I do now because my time, I mean, time is money, right, for us. And, um, so I think just focusing on the biggest thing for me was kind of starting with skills, um, went through AJ. Um, I also initially, you know, when I first started the um, Don Keenan's method of reptile now edge, um, just getting into some of those courses and learning and hearing is helpful. Um just being exposed to it, like you said, but you're right. Not, not all programs are created equal. And uh, are you starting to get asked to speak a bit? I know I, I, I have you on the uh, speaker lineup for the Academy of Trucking Accident Attorneys uh, Symposium uh, in Austin, Texas in September, because I think you're impressive and you have something to share. A- anyone else starting to get you in there yet? Um, I had, let's see, it was kind of at the end of COVID. Yeah. Uh, I was asked to speak for AAJ on a trucking, a limited edition uh, series on trucking litigation. Yeah. Uh, that was my first speaking engagement. And that maybe at the beginning of this year, it, that 
was the CLE was presented. Um, and then obviously here today, which I'm very happy about, um, yeah. AATAA, I'll be looking forward to. And then the New Jersey trial lawyers, um, a few weeks ago asked me if I would be willing to speak at their annual symposium at the end of June. The boardwalk? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a fun one. And, and, the. Uh... There's a chef. I don't remember the name. There's there's some restaurant you, you go to the night before with other speakers and stuff. It's it should be a fun time. That's what I heard. Um, and I think they're doing it virtual this year. Oh, that stinks. So you miss, but, you miss out on the experience. Yeah, keep. I, I will encourage you also to, you know, don't you know you don't want to be obnoxious about it, but but don't be afraid to put yourself out there and to speak because I've been in a lot of the committees where we're asking like we're trying to plan a seminar. And it's really, you know, like, okay, who can we think of? What are the topics and who can we think of? And a lot of times it's like, you know, a month later, like you run into someone like, oh, I should ask that person. This person's really good. Not that the other people you asked weren't good, but it's just, it's a lot of just who comes top of mind at a seminar. And sometimes if you ask nicely, uh, you get in. Right. And, yeah. And I've, you know, I've noticed that, uh, you know, some people are just, they don't want to seem rude or they want to seem pushy. And so that they don't ask. And then the people that do ask get in. And so, you know, if you want to advance your career, you need to advocate for yourself. And, and frankly, probably shouldn't be talking about this on a podcast, but, you know, show up to the whatever the group is, show up to the dinner, show up to the happy hours and do that networking. Because it's just, you know, once you get your shot, you got to do a good job. To get right. back. But but being top of mind makes a difference. And then, you know, being able to pick up the phone uh, and talk to all these great lawyers. I mean. I'm I'm luckily in a position now where, you know, I have trial coming up. You know, I wanted to try a slightly different Vordire. And Joe Freed spent 30 minutes on the phone with me talking about what he did in a case on, on jury selection and, you know, and another issue. Michael Leeserman got on the phone with me. I mean, just the, the ability to have that kind of a resource, not asking for anything in return other than to be their friend and, and be there for them. Uh, and you'll get that as you as you network is because you're friends with these people. Right. Absolutely. Um, the person that got me started with AAJ was actually Tim Lange. Oh, he's a great guy. He's the current president of the Trucking Litigation Group. And we had a triple tractor trailer crash in Kentucky that I count like got him in on. Um, and we worked together on that. And that was awesome. You know, yeah. just meeting him, seeing how he works. Um, going to Kentucky and Chicago and getting the right, we, we were dragged in federal court. So uh, getting to argue some pertinent discovery issues at that point was really awesome. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned making friends and networking. I think the listservs attached to these groups are awesome um, because you do, even if you're younger or newer, to trucking or whatever area it is, you're going to make friends, you're going to make contacts. If you are responsive and active on those list servers, people are going to recognize your name. Yep. Um, and it, it definitely helps. And there were people on the list servers that I kind of tossed some pieces of this case for the $15 million settlement out to wanting advice on just to kind of see what other people are doing, you yep. know? Um, cause there's not one right way to do everything. So it's always good to kind of keep a, keep an eye on, you know, what's trendy or what's working or what's not working or new ideas, uh, when you're prepping a case. And so that was an invaluable resource to me. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. So let's turn to the case now. Uh, tell me about the case. So I'm limited in what I can say about the case, but um, you know, this was a complex liability case stemming from a, a series of car wrecks. Um, and 
the, those car wrecks resulted in catastrophic injuries to my client. Um, you know, he didn't die, but he's, he will have to live with what he's got for the rest of his life. Um, and that's really hard. He's young. Um, fortunately he has family, you know, most of our clients in catastrophic injury cases, you know, the brain injuries, the spinal injuries, which we handle a lot of, um, they don't have family, you know, to help. And so that was one thing that I'm thankful for, you know, in this scenario, if it had to happen, at least, you know, this, this client has family that can help take care of them. Um, but the case involved a commercial, a company operating under the commercial federal regs. This particular, you know, one of the defendants involved was not in a commercial vehicle at the time, which was kind of a big issue in the case that gave me a little bit of trouble at first, trying to kind of work my brain around how to how to argue and grapple with that appropriately and persuasively. Um, and you know, that's kind of based on our investigation of the case, pulling experts in, you know, we made our own determination on liability and we stuck with that. And that was probably one of the harder points in the case. It's because I'm used to doing, you know, commercial cases, trucking litigation with everything more clear cut. I know the rules. I know what applies. I know what arguments I'm going to make. But in this case, that posed a little bit of a challenge for me initially. Um, but it was it's a complex liability situation because there was my client's car and a couple other vehicles that were involved also. Was there, and again, if I go too far, I don't want to risk uh, your confidentiality and get you your client suit or anything. So just put me in my place if I step out too much. I'm just trying to get enough information where it makes sense to the listener without getting me in trouble. So, I mean, was there more than one impact, I guess, over a period of time? I mean, because you have like the three, like one car hits a car that hits a car, and then you have like someone gets in a wreck, and then someone else hits it, and then maybe someone else hits it. Multiple impacts. And ultimately, you know, my client was had brain injuries and a spinal cord injury from that. Um, and so com- the complexity comes from the liability sequence there. Right. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, what what the liability was. Were they trying to blame your client for kind of setting up a situation that caused the wreck or having some fault in the wreck? Yes. You know, and that's always in all of our cases here, because Alabama's pure contrib, like you said, that 1% gets us a big fat zero with the jury. It may get us thrown out on summary judgment, depending on what what it is and what the facts for the particular case show. Um, but that's always something in the back of our minds that is going back to the fear thing, a little bit of the fear monger in this case is that contributory negligence. You know, what do you do with that? Is something going to come up in this case that's going to blow up the theory, you know, blow it out of the water. We've spent all this money, time, resources, and then we're going to end up with nothing because some unknown fact is going to be revealed showing contributory negligence on the part of the client. In small cases, you know, you worry about that, but when you have the catastrophic injury, that, I mean, that's, that's one of the bigger, bigger worries for us down here in Alabama. But yeah, that's basically, you know, basically what one of the arguments was as far as contributing that was still on the table. Um, for us in Alabama, anytime we have the contributory defense, I'm always looking at the other driver's conduct to see was there a conduct wanton? Because in Alabama, you cannot use the contributory defense if wanton conduct's involved. Okay. You know, wanton. What is wanton in Alabama? So, um, willful uh, or malice, um, some knowingly doing an act, and you know, you know, it's going to cause harm to somebody, and probably cause harm to somebody, and you do it anyways. Um, you know, there's that conscious disregard phrase that's thrown around with that, but we don't have any case law in Alabama that really clearly says what is one conduct. Okay. We have a couple of texting and driving, 
um, opinions out, but there's nothing that really clearly says this is long conduct. It's always just a question for the jury. So what did you do to try to develop, you know, whether you could, you, th- you thought, and obviously the other thought, side thought that, that you had a chance of proving wanton conduct, which would take away the contributory defense. Yeah, um, we really had to rely on discovery for that. Um, like in every case, you, sometimes you don't know what you're going to get until you get into discovery. And in this case, discovery was slim, like it is initially in most cases against companies. You know, you kind of have to pull teeth to get exactly what you're looking for. Um, and some companies, believe it or not, just don't have what you think they should have. It still surprises me. I'm just like, what? You know, but it, that was the case here. You know, um, there wasn't really anything glaring, you know, that golden nugget that I always try to find that I've been taught to find. Um, look for the gold nugget because that is your case. I really, we really didn't have that here. I can't get into too much about what was the conduct and what was our theory on it. But if the case had not resolved at mediation, one of my strategies was to file a motion to strike the contributory negligence affirmative defense um, and go and argue that based on one conduct and, and evidence we had gathered during the case. And I don't want to believe I wouldn't have been successful on that, but I was damn sure going to try my hardest to argue that. And I do think that, you know, that that the doors open there for, for this particular case. And unfortunately we didn't really, I say, unfortunately, I should say, fortunately, I guess for the clients, we didn't have to go through that extended process of trial, but um, that motion was drafted in this case. And that's something that motion to strike the contributory negligence affirmative defense uh, it's something that we hadn't done before. Um, that was a tool that I I kind of brainstormed with my co-counsel, my trial counsel, um, and was like, I think we can do this. Let's figure out a way to do this. And so I think that's a tool that I'm going to use in the future and just kind of keep that in my back pocket if I ever need it again. And before you went into depositions, was that something you were setting up to try to prove and try to establish? Not necessarily. You know, um, there was a lot of unknowns in this particular case, which can be good and bad. You know, in all of our cases, like let's just take the simple rear ender. I never saw him. I never saw him. He was there. I never saw him. Or, you know, I looked down and grabbed my chapstick and looked up and, and I never saw anything. That's kind of something we're always looking for is what is the reason? And if you don't have the answer, sometimes that's almost more helpful. I I sometimes like it when there's no answers because I'm like, the jury's going to expect this person to be able to answer why they did. And so I pursued, my goal was to pursue it as a systems case, you know, systems Uh like we talk about and kind of look for, ferret out what, what's the reason and pin the defendant down on what caused it? You know, what, did you see? Did you not see? Why didn't you see? Why didn't you, you know, what is it? And we do that in every case, um, especially when people aren't really willing to come out and say why, whatever happened, happened. Um, and so we were able to get some very favorable testimony from this person. And typically, if you have a company involved, you know, one of the strategies we talk about is trying to look for the opportunity to take an employee or a contractor or whatever um, and flip them against the company. Yeah. And sometimes those opportunities just aren't there. You know, um, sometimes it's not the right person. Sometimes it's not the right employment situation. Sometimes the facts just really aren't there and you just don't have a person that's going to be able to do that for you. Um, And so that's what we were successful on in this particular case. Um, And that was our theory going in. That was part of my strategy. And you said systems failure. Now, you know, I'm always trying to find systems failures too, but not every listener may have heard the the theory. What do you mean by a a systems failure as as opposed to just an accident? 
Yeah. So um, juries don't like, I think my baseline is always juries don't like for there to be an individual driver on the other side of the table in a car wreck. You know, they don't want to award a million dollars against a person, you know, Betty Joe that lives down the street from them. They would rather award money against a company, you know, an insurance company, uh, a big corporation of some sort. Um, and so stemming from that, if you can do anything to say that, you know, position the case and frame it such that the company failed the driver, you know, the employer failed the driver. Um, they didn't either, you know, qualification, training, hiring process, supervising. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different factors that you can put on that. We typically use the three-legged stool, which is a Don Keenan thing, and go through, you know, we pick our three basically okay. in the system. For most cases, we start at qualification, hiring, and supervision. Sometimes training is in there, but Alabama is really hard to get those claims through anyway. So we kind of dance around some of those depending on the facts of the case. But yeah, you want to systems failure means find where the company failed, you know, what didn't work, what did the company do or not do, you know? Um, and you'll find, I think that a lot of companies on the qualification side or on the training side or on the supervision side just aren't, aren't doing what they need to do. Juries understand that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a lot easier to have the, the defendant driver as a victim and not the bad guy. They're the victim of their own employer. Right. That's why in Texas, the legislature is looking like they're trying to take all that away from us right now. They have a bill pending. The- <laughs> Things are okay. crazy out in Texas. I mean, there is- well, our Supreme Court's gotten a lot better, actually. Um, we've we've had we had an eight figure jury verdict affirmed last week by our Texas Supreme Court. Wow. Uh, we had another some other cases affirmed that people were worried about. Um, so I actually had a coffee with one of our Texas Supreme Court judges not to talk about cases, just she's running for reelection. And, uh, you know, and we didn't talk about specific cases, but just about the fact that, you know, I think that they're more balanced than they used to be. I mean, the fact that one would ask for money and um, go have a cup of coffee with a plaintiff's lawyer is already telling <laughs> something. <laughs> That's awesome, though. Um, you know, maybe Alabama will have something one day where we can break that eight million dollar yeah. threshold that has been created here for injury cases. Yeah, I think uh, part of it is, you know, the is you can't. How can I? If you're in a state that can't elect liberal Democrats that don't make conservative Republicans your enemy. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really unpopular with a lot of my brother and sister trial lawyers for saying that. Uh, but if you just antagonize people and, and you call them your enemy, then they're going to have no love lost for you. And I think there's, you know, making making peace on common issues when you can uh, realize you can disagree without being disagreeable and not calling them Nazis and stuff like that really helps. Yeah. And I, I think that that translates over to in working these cases, you know, Absolutely. I mean, it's defense lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers. It's there's a symbiosis there that has to happen for things to get done. Um, and it's not there in all cases, but it helps if everybody's, you know, can listen, can understand and still have their own opinions at the end of the day, um, and try to work together to to make things better for the clients, make things better for the public. If you're talking about, you know, election stuff, um, it's just better for everybody. So I'm with you on that. Absolutely. Although all my really big cases, I tend to get the defense lawyer that uh, is not so nice and it's really hard to deal with. (laughs) <laughs> it's a part of it, you know. Um, it, I hate that too because it makes our jobs a thousand times more time-consuming, if anything. You know, but I always tell myself, you know, if I ever come across a defense attorney that you know is just not not my speed, you know, not jiving, very difficult to deal with. I can't be the only one, you know. So that that's how I make myself feel better about it. I, I almost prefer to have an a-hole on the other side on a big case now for a couple of reasons. One, if you're an a-hole all day long, very few people can turn it off all the time in front of the jury. There are a few that are such sociopaths that they can just be two different people. But most of the time it shows or they did something that's going to be in one of the video depot clips. So you're being all nice and smarmy at trial, but then they see you on the video depots being a total a-hole. Um, 
and also when you're negotiating settlement, you're thinking, I'm not going to take a dime less than that. When it's been someone that's been a thorn in your side the whole time and you've got them over the coals and you're just not going to let up. Whereas it's been someone who's been really nice to you and like, come on, can't we make a deal? Can you give a little bit? You know, when they've been giving to you, it just, you know, you still have to do it, but it feels bad. Whereas, you know, when you get extra money out of somebody, you know, you know what your client would take, but you're pushing for even more. And they've been in a total a-hole the whole case. You feel good about doing that to them. Right. Yeah. It makes you feel a little bit better because it, it kind of fuels the fire. For yeah, me. exactly. You know, and like you see, you pointed out a great thing there. The jury is going to sniff that out so quickly yeah. that it's going to be over for them. Um, and so that's something in this particular case, I was really wanting to try this case. I wanted yeah. to go bad. Um, and that was, you know, that was one of the things that we had looked at is, you know, how's the jury going to perceive us? How's the jury going to perceive the case, our clients, you know? Yeah. But you take the lawyers into that picture. Absolutely. Did you do any kind of, do you all do any kind of focus group work or other kind of jury research? We did not get to that in this. Okay. Um, I had actually, one of the things that I'm big on cases is prepare, prepare, prepare. Like, prepare like you're going to trial. That was my main goal. That was my number one strategy in this case is I don't care what else is going on in this case, what other factors may or may not hurt us. I'm going to prepare from the beginning. Like I'm taking this to trial and I'm not looking back. Um, And that is the mentality that I think helped push the mediation and push the settlement. Um, and that's a mentality that works, especially in bigger cases where you have catastrophic injuries. We typically use that same, that same go get them attitude. We're going to try this case. We're not going to mediate. Um, and then you kind of see how things unfold. But um, I think that's important. Are you interested in attending Cowan's Big Rig Boot Camp? This year, we'll be hosting the seminar in San Antonio, Texas on May 20th, 2021. In-person seating is available, but will be limited per state guidelines in order to provide a safe event. And if you'd like to attend virtually, we'll be offering another professionally produced seminar available via Zoom. For more information, visit www.bigrigbootcamp.com to sign up for our mailing list and find out details as soon as they're available. Nothing you had mentioned, you, you have a a vehicle that was not a quote unquote commercial motor vehicle. In other words, it's not it's not regulated by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations or Alabama's, uh, you know, whatever, whichever it. I don't know how many of the regulations Alabama's adopted. I, I have to go look at my table in my book. But, a good chunk of them. Yeah. Uh, so it's a different challenge when, you know, it's a company owned vehicle and they ought to do something if you want to do a systems failure, but they don't have the federal government or the state government saying you have to do it. How do you find rules or systems that should be followed when you don't have a federally regulated vehicle? Yeah, so that was kind of perplexing to me at first, like I said earlier. Um, ultimately, I ended up going back through, you know, I go back to the company's materials first. Yeah. And I say, okay, you know, what did the company train on? What were their expectations, you know? They follow the company. If they're federally regulated, they've got to follow the guidelines. You know, they've got to do all the qualification. They've got to, you know, make sure that their files are padded with everything the regs say they got to be padded with. Um, They have to supervise drivers when they're on the job. And that's kind of, in this case, the crux that I wanted to focus on was, you know, training and supervision. We, training hadn't really happened yet, which blew my mind. Um, and they put their employee that, you know, most companies have like an orientation period, right? right. I think most of us will find that in cases. If you have ever have a case against a new employee or a relatively fresh employee, um, you'll find that companies have different, you know, different levels of training that they may go through over a period of time. Um, and you got to look to see whether your defendant driver actually, like what phase were they in the training? Um, so that was a big thing in this case. Um, and then, it, I mean, the training was was not, it was not almost non-existent, um, but the company still has an obligation 
to, to train and to be responsible for that driver when they're on the road was my argument. Whether she, whether, whether the driver's in a commercial vehicle or not, they're on the job doing that job and that matters. Um, and then as far as the supervision portion that I was focused on, you know, I, I went back to their records. And, you know, you always look for policies and procedures. Yeah. If you don't find any, you rely on deposition testimony, which is the strategy in this case. And, um, Got some good testimony on that. Um, and so that that was our case in a nutshell, you know. And it was hard because there was no, you know, we all think about these big cases and there's going to be some big like wow factor. Ooh, that's bad. You know, right. like the company's the bad guy. And this was my first big case, you know, seven plus figure case that didn't have something horrible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just, it made it hard for my brain to process. It happened. You know, what I, what we really work on on those is finding a compared to what? In other words, this is their training and qualifications com- or supervision compared to another company or a written standard, even if it's not a regulation that has to be followed. So, you know, you have the American National Standard Institute has a standard. Uh, a lot of companies say they never heard of it, but like if they have more than just trucks, if they have, like one we had, like in the in their factory floor, they followed ANSI standards. They knew what ANSI was, right. uh, but they don't follow it for the driving. Uh, you know, and then look at other similar companies and what are their standards. You look at the National Safety Council puts things out there. OSHA sometimes has a little bit, not too much, but a little bit about driving. You know, you just look at, you know, what can we find like in writing showing this is what reasonable companies do and then show that this defendant is an exception to that rule. Now, you don't always find it. Or sometimes, you know, the, it's hard to get someone to say this is the standard. But, you know, right. I think industry standards are something that more and more we need to look at when we go outside of the of the trucking. Even in trucking, you know, the, the regulations don't cover every single little point. And let's face it, there's lobbyists for the trucking industry that are watering down those regulations. Right. And sometimes we need to show, hey, the reasonably safe, like parking on, parking on the shoulder of the road, you shouldn't do it. It's not a reg that prohibits it, but it's a really bad idea. Uh, and it's really dangerous. And so you can show like these 50 companies don't allow that or these 50 companies don't allow U-turns, even though it might be technically legal. It's a really bad idea. So it's negligent to do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think with you mentioned ANSI, you know, and it is funny how everybody comes up. Oh, I've never heard of that. But there are ins- a lot of corporations, especially commercial motor vehicle operations, are insured by insurers who support those national standards. You know, that's what they're they're graded on. That's what the, the insurance companies requires certain things of the company to be able to operate motor vehicles as a part of the business. And so if you fall back to whatever that comp- insurance company relies on, that that gives you another set to work from when when the discovery is slim. Yeah, and sometimes they have stuff on the insurance company websites, and sometimes there's actually things the insurance companies send to some of their bigger policyholders like Here's some tips for hiring new drivers and what you should look for. Here's some tips for how to supervise people. And and that's really helpful. What doesn't seem to work, and maybe it works for you, what doesn't seem to work for me as much is, well, you ought to have the same roles for your non-commercial drivers as you do for your regulated drivers. Uh, Jurors, in my experience, have not been super receptive to that argument. I don't know what you found there. Right. Yeah. And that was the point that I was struggling with um, strategy wise is, you know, what do we have here? Um, and I think that's why it's really important to get good depositions of the company, the defendant company. In any case, you need to take those depositions and get good sound bites on those things, um, because a lot of companies just don't care or they just don't know. And so when you have a company that just doesn't care about what happened, or just doesn't know what the rules are or what they're supposed to be doing. It, I think that that almost makes up for any lack in theory, any, you know, bombshell. Oh my gosh, this is so horrible because people expect at least down here where we practice primarily, we have an educated jury pool. We have people that are business owners that, you know, they're going to be able to relate with company owners and they're going to feel like, well, I'm helped to this. I'm supposed to know this. You're supposed to know this. You're supposed to care about this. Um, And so that's, 
was kind of the fallback was the deposition testimony and the sound bites um, that we were able to get from the company. And like I said, a lot of times companies just don't care, you know. Enjoying the episode? Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. So just kind of in a conclusion, so if someone is lucky enough uh, to get one of these kind of cases come across their desk, you know, you get you get hired on something, you know, catastrophic injury or death, you get, I, were you all hired fairly early on or did you get brought in by someone else uh, after they worked on it for a while? This case came directly to us oh, nice. about a week after it happened. So um, most of the cases we get are the same way, you know. Um, I tend to get trucking cases that have been sat on for a year or so. Yeah. And over because I do a lot of trucking and they're like, hey, we kind of wrap this up or file it. And I'm like, this needs to be filed. We've lost evidence here. Yeah. You know? So that was a good thing, you know, and a good thing in any case is to get it up front. And we did here. So we were able to preserve evidence. We were yeah. able to get our letters out. We were able to try to start investigating. Um, and because there were so many unknowns, like in a lot of times, if your client's catastrophically injured, or they have a brain injury, you know, they can't tell you what happened. They don't remember. Um, and it makes your job as a lawyer a little bit harder as far as the facts of the case and the liability goes because you don't have them to tell their side of the story. Yeah. Uh, so you have to find a way to, to, to tell their story for them. And so what, you know, kind of big picture advice do you have for someone then? They get one of these cases, they want to maximize it like you did. Uh, what's kind of the big, you know, two, three points you can, you could give on that? Um, the biggest point, and I'll say this with a caveat that what works for me may not work for everybody else. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to I have a pretty aggressive approach to litigation. Um, and so I'm still trying to kind of hone in how to be my real self and, you know, hone my own way, you know, to handle cases and add, you know, adversarial things um, and kind of find that balance, you know. Um, but my first piece of advice would be that I do think it's helpful when you have high damages in the case to really focus on your overall strategy. Um, and most of the time that's going to be posturing aggressively like you're going to take it to trial. You're not going to settle out early because the damages are so high. Too much yeah. at stake. Um, obviously, you have to consider venue, um, your plane, and stuff like that. But generally, I think you should start out with you know filing the case, pursuing it as if you're going to try the case, preparing it early on as if you're going to try the case. Right, right. Figure out your experts months in advance. You know, um, get people involved. If you need trial counsel, go ahead and incorporate that person in or those people in so that they can be in the case from, you know, the, the starting point and not jumping in a couple months or a month before trial. Um, posturing aggressively is scary for defense lawyers that don't want to try the case. Absolutely. Or, if your venue is not great, you know, not great for them, they don't want you to posture that way because they want to believe that they'll be able to ultimately resolve the case no matter what they do in the meantime, you know, that they're going to have a chance to, to look good for their client too, you know. So that would be my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice would be prepare, prepare, prepare. Don't be fearful. Being prepared helps ferret out fear. It helps shut it out, get it out. Um, the more you prepare and the more you know your case, being actively involved, being at every deposition, preparing your own outlines for every deposition, working with your paralegal or your team, 
Um, or even if it's just you by yourself, work the case up and um, be involved in it the whole time. Um, I think as lawyers, we tend to get so busy, but these bigger cases with bigger damages require so much more time, time and investment. You know, this particular case, me and my paralegal worked on it every day for almost three years, like even on the weekends, even at night. And some people aren't willing to do that. And some people work are workaholics anyways, but it's the, the ability to be able to focus on preparing for that case, you know, pouring into that case and finding a balance with getting the rest of your cases done and your other clients taken care of depending on your caseload. But um, being prepared and really over-prepared is so important. I, I find that most defense attorneys are not as prepared as I am. Yeah, and that absolutely. always seems to benefit me. And, you know, I was taught that if you work hard, that you will probably always outwork the other side. You know, you'll do better. It's just work hard. So the third thing, my third piece of advice would be just to know what you don't know. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, if you don't have experience handling serious injuries, catastrophic injuries, high damages cases, think about somebody that you know that does and pull them in, associate them at some level, make them trial counsel if you don't have trial experience or if you feel like you need a team because you got so many witnesses, so much information, um, so many documents. Don't be afraid to do that because ultimately, whatever money you spend on experts, co-counsel, whatever resources you need to posture the case appropriately, you will earn that back most likely threefold, you know, and at the end of it, you'll be glad that you did and that you did what you needed to do to pull, pull the right people in and get people involved. And you learn from those people in the process. It's kind of like a, a give and a take situation. And then, you know, going to that point, a lot of attorneys don't have experience working a big truck case, you know, yeah. or, or working a, a brain injury case with limits, higher limits. And they just, they do it themselves and maybe lose out on more money, you know, for themselves and the client. Um, you know, you want to get the best result possible for the client and do all that you can do. And if you, if you don't, if you think you know how to handle it and you think you're, you know, you're good, but you don't really have the experience to do it. Don't be afraid to say, Hey, help me out, go find help. Um, and ultimately it'll pay off. And then the next one you have, you know, you may not have to have to get so many people involved or use so many resources. Absolutely. Okay, Mallory, we'll have your website, your contact in the show notes. But if, if someone's, you know, driving and doesn't feel like checking out the show notes, how does someone find you if they, you know, they have, they want to brainstorm with you in a case, maybe they have a case that they want to bring you in on? Okay. Um, my email is Mallory at waltonlaw.net. That's M-A-L-L-O-R-Y. Yes. O-R-Y at waltonlaw.net. And then um, I'm with Walton Law Firm in Auburn, Alabama, and we have a website, a Facebook, and whatever. Our phone number is 334-321-3000. I try to be active on the list servers and stuff like that. Um, so if you need me, you should be able to find me. But I'd be glad. I love bouncing ideas off people, you know, and talking cases and hearing what other people are doing and strategizing. Um, all of our seven-plus-figure cases they're never perfect. There's always some little caveat to them. So, you know, I, I kind of baptism by fire working on cases that were really hard to be successful at. Yeah. So I really have come to enjoy that. And so um, I'll be glad to talk to anybody or help with you and anybody in any way. Um, I'm, a, I'm just a sitting resource if people want to reach out. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to seeing you soon at all my boot camp, Big Rig Boot Camp, which is coming up on May 20th and all the other uh, seminars. I'm, I'm sure to see you at come up this year. It's going to be nice to see people in person again. I cannot wait. And I also look forward to watching your career ascent continue over the years while you continue to, to climb up the ladder and get better and better. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. And I look forward to that too. I cannot wait to be back in person with everybody. 
Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff-lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.